We've been doing a series from Colossians, and we called it, It's All About Him. Uh, last week, we saw chapter 1, and we saw that there is fullness in knowing Christ. And this week, we want to look at chapter 2. And the key verse that I wanted to pick up for our, uh, for our passage today is from verse 8 and 9 or 9 and 10, sorry. For in him, the fullness, the whole fullness of Godhead dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. Father, we we pray that you would speak to us, Lord, and we pray that it would be your words, nothing of me, Lord. We pray that this would be to your glory. In Jesus Christ, the Lord's name, we pray. So we saw in chapter 1 that it was about the preeminence of Christ. He, he begins and he says it is about Christ. It's about the sovereignty of Christ. And then he continues the theme on to chapter 2. He's been talking about the sovereignty. Now he talks about the sufficiency of Christ. The sovereignty and the sufficiency of Christ. And what chapter 2 is all about is the dangers that you have if you were to add or take away from the sovereignty or the sufficiency. We want to talk about these dangers. We want to see what does that mean? How do we actually add or how do we take away from the sovereignty and the sufficiency of Christ? And Paul is very emphatic, and that's what he wants to do in chapter 2. And so, therefore, the key words that we have, which says, his, in him... The whole fullness of Godhead dwells bodily, and we have been filled in him. What it says is he is filled, he's complete. There's nothing that you can add to him, and we don't want to take anything away from that completeness. And that key verse that we have is to say that because of his completeness, we have a confidence that we will be complete. That we'll be complete. I was talking to Jason when uh, Josh, you know, referred to him as the old grumpy man. And I think about myself, we're all that, aren't we? We are going to become holy and blameless. And to be complete in him. And so as we think about this, uh, and as we start to look at chapter 2, this is what Wearsby says. Wearsby says, the believer who masters this chapter is not likely to be led astray by some alluring and enticing new and improved brand of Christianity. <coughs> I'm sorry. New and improved brand of Christianity will not happen. We will not fall for it if we know the truth of the sovereignty and the sufficiency of Christ. And that's what we want to look at today. All right? So um, the key words, therefore, is uh, 9 and 10. And we said that it is a call to discern through maturity in Christ what these dangers are. And that is what we want to look at. This maturity, he, what Paul has done is he's sprinkled in this chapter 2 some of the things that calls for maturity. Th those are marks of maturity. And if we were to look at that, it becomes evident for us that let's follow those, and by doing that, we will be careful to uh, keep the sovereignty and the sufficiency of Christ um, preeminent. Okay, so, so therefore what he does, 
When you look at uh, chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, he says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. Having spoken about the sovereignty of Christ, he begins chapter 2 with a prayer. You know the word that he used, the struggle, the great struggle that you have in your translation? It says great struggle. The word is agon. The same word that we get agony from. He's striving in his prayer. He's striving. It's an athletic word. It's, it's a word that athletes would use, but he's striving to get to that place. And that's what Paul is doing. And see the three parts. And I think about this, and I said, um, you know, this is such a great role model prayer for, uh, for elders, for pastors, for shepherds, that we would agonize over this maturity that we want within the flock. And so the three parts to that is easy to remember, encouragement, endearment, and enrichment. He wants us to be encouraged, that our hearts would be encouraged. He's talking about endearment. He's saying that our hearts would be knit together in love. And that we would reach to the full riches of the treasure in Jesus Christ. God's mystery, Jesus Christ, that we would know who he is. To know who he is. You see, we we sang a song and I thought it was just so beautiful. Knowing you, Jesus, knowing you, there is no greater thing. You're my all, you're the best you're my joy, my righteousness, and I love you, Lord. And then it goes on to talk about knowing you. And that's one of the prayer, parts of the prayer that Paul has. But he, he's not just praying for their maturity, but he's also thankful. In that same verse 1 and 2, if you look, he's, he's also saying that, you're, that, you're, that, he's, that your love is overflowing that your love is overflowing, that you'd be knit together in love. You know what uh, Paul has already done when he started chapter, uh, the Colossians in, uh, in chapter 1? If you look at 3 and 4, this is what he says. We always thank God for the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, not just faith with Christ Jesus, but the love that you have for all the saints. He does the same for Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 15, he says, For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints. Your love towards all the saints. What Paul is recognizing is what his Lord taught him. Matthew 22, when, uh, when the Lord was asked, what's the greatest law? What did, what did the Lord say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And the second is like unto this, that love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. That this love that you have for God would overflow to the love that you have for the saints. I want to call it the love extension. And so he, he says that. And he says, and as he comes to verse 3, he says the reason is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the reason why this can happen. He is the wonderful treasure. God's mystery, Jesus Christ, as we read in verse 3. And I want to read to you. A quote. It says, Theology is holy science. 
God's riches are denied to unholy people. Jesus cannot be known by the ungodly, but only to whom God reveals the mystery, Jesus Christ. We're the only ones who can get to know this mystery, God's mystery, Jesus Christ. We are the ones to whom this, uh, he has been revealed, to whom this unplumbed depths of the treasures found in Christ. It says later that Jesus Christ, who is the, the, the treasure of all wisdom and knowledge, and Jesus Christ. And so, I want to say maturity is about knowing. Maturity is about knowing the greatest subject there is, the Lord Jesus Christ. But I know, you know what some of the problem is? The problem is that we Christians are strangers to this treasure. We're not familiar with this treasure. We haven't dug deep to hold firm, to hold on, to know who our this treasure is. And sometimes the fear is that we all come together and that among us there would be somebody who's deceived and, and, and thinks everything is okay, but has never come to the step of knowing Christ. Knowing Christ. And knowing Christ is a journey. You begin and you continue on till the unplumbed, unplumbed depths of the treasures in Christ Jesus. So Paul begins by saying that the son of maturity that we know, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so our prayer, our prayer is just these, these three parts, right? That we would have this personal encouragement, that we have this loving community, and that we have this deeper and richer knowledge of God's mystery. That we, we would have a love that seeps. A love that seeps. You know, we, we've, somebody, people have already told us, right? We, we can't say that we love God and yet hate his children. Or we can't say that we love the Lord Jesus Christ and hate his bride, the church. The love must seep. Love must overflow. You see, the love doesn't stop with the saints, but he, he, the Lord Jesus Christ says, love your enemies. It goes beyond. It, it, this overflowing is that this, you know, the, the no, knowledge of Jesus Christ messes with your flesh. It messes with our flesh in such a way that we, we, we come to a point of doing things as led by the Spirit. where we can love the unlovable and we go out and love enemies. You know, there are, there are stories. I, 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 don't want to, uh, I, I don't want to fill your, uh, fill your time but just giving stories. I know you can read that, but you have heard stories of how Christians have gone to these difficult parts or have had stories where they have loved, where you says, how can that love ever happen? And I want to tell you, brothers and sisters, that's because of the love that God has laid in their hearts. And that overflows. 
in knowing Christ. And so we, we have in 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, this is what John says. He says, how can you say you love God and hate his uh, and um, hate your Christian brother or your sister, if you do that, you're a liar. Because if you don't love people we can see, how can we love God who we do not see? Uh, and I think about myself. I, I, I think about myself as the one who has been forgiven those 10,000 talents. As ones who... Sometimes I think it, 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 it's more than those 10,000 talents. And I ask myself, if I have received much grace, such forgiveness, such love, how is it that it doesn't overflow onto everybody else and everything else? That it will be self-evident. The result of knowing Christ, that what Christ does in me would be apparent to the others. And so the three parts of that prayer we see in the first part. But then as you get down to verse 4 and 7, I want to call it the maturity is growing in Christ. Not just knowing Christ in that verse 1 and 2 and 3, but then also growing in Christ. You see, growth is about stability. Growth is about deepness as a Christian. Growth is about increasing conformity as a Christ, uh, in, increasing conformity to Christ. That we grow, that we grow. And, and so what he does in this passage from four to seven is that he gives us three imageries. The three imageries is one of a platoon or like an army. Then you have that of a pilgrim, and then of a plant. A platoon talk, talking about stability, the pilgrim talking about progress, and then plant talking about growth. You see, a, the word in verse 5 is that there is good order, good order. That order is a military term, as if the army is standing there, not moving, very firmly fixed, Steadfast and in order. And then you have verse 6, which talks about the pilgrim. So walk in him. Verse 6 says, therefore, as you've received Christ Jesus, walk in him. The, it's pictured as a journey, isn't it? With Christ himself being the way, this progress there. Then it goes on to verse 7, where it says, like a plant, that you would be rooted and built up. Not just a shrub, but deep-rooted and planted. A picture of growth. And then in verse 8, he goes on to give us a warning. And he's saying that, let no one take you captive. You need to be grounded. You need to be growing. You need to be going. But you need to be careful that no one takes you captive. And in, and in knowing Christ, and then as you grow in Christ, that you would grow to be firm and steadfast, that nobody shakes you, that no human philosophy, no logic is. So people will come and tell you, start talking to you. They will say, this is in the Bible. It seems like it's rational, but it is just human philosophy. Or they might start talking about spiritual uh, you know, additions that would come in. And I want us to understand at that point, because we have grown that it is not of the Lord, not of the word. 
that they would not take us captive. But you know the problem with uh, deceit or the other side of deceit is this. The other side of deceit is this. We keep hearing that we should not get, we should not be listening to false teaching, right? And as a result, what happens is we reject not just the false teaching, which is great, but we reject all kinds of teaching. Even the ones that are, that's necessary and helpful and needed. We don't take time to, to discern. And that's because we haven't grown. We haven't understood. We, we don't feel that we are competent enough and we reject everything else and we don't grow as a result. We need to be careful of that too. To grow in the knowledge and in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Reno sent me a text early this week, uh, last week, and said about, you know, you know the difference between growing in the knowledge and in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I thought that was just, the way it was put was so phenomenal. You see, growing in the knowledge is about reading God's word and knowing what God's word is saying. And then growing in grace is putting into practice what you have learned so that you grow both in knowledge and in grace. And unless we do that, there's no maturity happening. And so, therefore, Paul is saying you need to be careful that they don't take you captive because if you fail to grow, you will fall. And we, we keep saying, you know, we want to be not just hearers of the word, but we want to be doers of the word. We pray that, but it's time that we practice it, that we become doers of the word. Then you get down to verse 7 to 8. I want us to see that maturity is about abundant thankfulness, abundant thankfulness, not just, being, not just being rooted in him, growing or built up in him, being strengthened in him, but abounding in thankfulness and gratitude, abounding in thankfulness and gratitude, abounding thankfulness. You see, it's not just love that will seep, but your gratitude will seep. If you have a grat- grateful heart, your gratitude, and if you have in your heart, it it's becomes evident in every aspect of your life. People watching you will see that you are a grateful person. There's something that's happened that you're grateful about. Having a grateful heart. Abounding in thankfulness. And I ask myself, if you, if you know Christ, and if you're growing in Christ, if you begin to know those unplumbed depths of the riches, the treasure in Jesus Christ, how can you not be grateful? How can you not be grateful? You see, because the negative, the danger of that, of not being grateful, is in Romans, isn't it? Romans chapter 1, what does it say in verse 26? When the new God... They did not acknowledge him, as, uh, acknowledge him as God, neither were they thankful. Neither were they thankful. And then it goes on to say that, um, that the senseless mind was darkened. The senseless mind was darkened. You know, that we don't have this spirit of ingratitude 
that, that our hearts that do not respond with gratitude to God will lead to a mind that is darkened. The lights go off. What it's saying is if we don't spend time knowing God, if we don't spend time knowing, growing in the Lord, and then you start not being grateful for all that he is, one of these days the lights of your mind will go off, and as a result you think everything is okay and everything is not. Well, I'm not sure if you've had any opportunities where you'd have to reach out in the dark and have to do something. I remember having to reach out for Vicks and getting Voltaren or Tiger Balm or something like that. I've had closet blindness. You know, in the, I used to get, to get to work and so early in the morning you don't want to turn on the light because your wife is sleeping and then you reach into the closet. You've got a black sock and a blue sock and you're at work with two different. When the lights go off, we think everything is okay till the lights come on. And God's word in Psalm 119 verse 30 says this, the entrance of your word gives light. If you don't take time to know him, if you don't take time to grow in him, we'll not be thankful. And a thankless, ungrateful heart can lead to a darkened mind. It's just a slope from down there. Someone said, an ungrateful man is like a pig under a tree eating acorns, but never looking up to see where they've come from. Ingratitude robs us of the increasing knowledge of the Son of God, renders us unable to grow in the grace, and darkens our mind to think that everything is okay. That everything is okay. Oh, that we would grow in the knowledge of the Son of God. Never be satisfied, taking every opportunity to know about Him. Oh, that our hunger would be genuine. Say, there's nothing else that can satisfy me in this world except to know who, who the Son of God is and more, know more of Him. And then as I grow in Him, and then I'm grateful to Him for all that He is. And I want you to see the progression as it goes on to verse 19 and verse 15. Because... When you know him, you grow in him, and you're thankful to him, you're satisfied in him, which is what verses 9 to 15 is all about. That you would find your greatest satisfaction in Jesus Christ. Because if he is the fullness of God in whom the, the, the fullness of Godhead dwells bodily, We think that should have been enough. We understand. Paul, we understand. But Paul says, no, let me tell you. And he lists nine things about Jesus Christ. Now I want us to go through that real quick. It says, you're filled in him. I'm not sure if he got the, the uh, imagery of what Paul is trying to say. He's trying to say, you're just an empty bottle with a cap off, all right? You got this empty bottle, nothing on the outside, nothing on the inside, and you just take that bottle, put it into the pail of bucket. Now what happens is the water goes in and there's water on the outside. You're filled in him. You're filled in him. You're filled in him. You're both in him and he is, and you are in him. You're filled in him. Circumcision of Christ. 
not just the putting off of the foreskins, but your flesh has been removed. He will start talking about it later. Only in Christ is the flesh removed. Then he talks about being buried with him in baptism, the demands of sin. You don't have to fulfill the demands of sin in your life because it's been buried. You've been buried with Christ. And then he says, you've been raised with him to live with him, verse 12. You're made alive together with Christ. And he's forgiven all your trespasses, verse 13. He's canceled the record of debt. Debt lest I. You know when Jesus said it's finished? That's what he meant. He's canceled the record. And it goes on to say that he nailed it to the cross in verse 14. That's a beautiful imagery. I want you to, I want you to think about this. You see, when the Lord was crucified, there were three. Uh, there was one on the right and one on the left, and, and we only know what was nailed on his cross, Jesus Christ, the King of the Jews. They had this practice to nail on the cross the accusation, and some people looked at that, and they mocked, we look at it, and we are thankful. And yet, brothers and sisters, if you look carefully, you will see your accusation nailed on that cross. That's what it says nailed to the cross. You should have been on the cross because it's your, the accusation against you. But Christ is. And he disarmed the rulers and authorities. We had one discussion at one point in time that when Moses died, there was this fight, as it were, to get his body. What about the Lord Jesus Christ? Why, 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 why did he not, you know, wise up to that? It tells me right here, because you disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame, triumphing over them. They were in such disarray. They were defeated. They couldn't even begin to think about any such strategies. Three victories on the cross, right? He disarmed them. He put them to open shame and he triumphed over them. That's the picture of the Roman triumph. When the conquering king comes into the city, on his royal steed, where the whole city comes out to welcome him. He brings with him all those guys who defeated, all, all chained up and everything, and he marches in for that royal triumph. And that's what we have here. And we're saying that you would find your total satisfaction in him. You would find that nothing else would capture or captivate you. Is there anything else Is there anything else that we can add to him or we dare take away from him? His sovereignty, his sufficiency. And I wrote this phrase and I thought it was really cool because I thought about it. He is the all-inclusive who is the all-exclusive. He is the all-inclusive, he is the all-exclusive. You know, we hear about the all-inclusive, we get everything. But Jesus Christ, the true, the only, all-inclusive, there's nothing, it's complete in him. There's nothing of God that's not in him. He is God. He's complete. He's self-sufficient. He's preeminent. We, we, we spoke about it. And yet, he is the all-exclusive. There's no one, nothing else, that can come and take his position. We think about, you know, prioritizing, right? And we say primary, we want to give Jesus the number one position. I think that's the greatest lie that we've been taught. 
because he cannot just have he cannot just have a primary priority he cannot just be your number one he has to be your exclusive priority he must be the only one if he's a self if he is the exclusive one and so verse 9 which says in him the complete uh, completeness of godhead dwelt bodily and we are complete in him this is exactly what it is that he is complete and that we can find a completeness only in him. And so what, what Paul is doing in verse 8, and then before he gets to verse 9, he's talking about this empty deceit according to human tradition and according to the elementary elements of this uh, elemental spirits of the world. He's saying, that's all empty. It's empty, really. It's empty talk. And he brings this contrast and he says, listen, you got something that's empty. Why do you run after that? Why do you give your energies to that in such a way that you will just end up with nothing? And here you have the completeness of God. It should be an easy choice to pick. Be knowing, be growing, be thankful, and be satisfied. And only these can happen in Christ, but, you know, Paul doesn't end there because he wants us to get this real well. He's not just talking now about that. He says, what happens, the dangers of adding or deleting? What are the dangers? And he brings about four dangers that happen. He's already spoken till here about the Gnosticism. The Gnostic were those who believed that Jesus Christ was a created being and that he was therefore in charge of creation after. And that was Gnosticism. And he has already destroyed that argument saying that Jesus Christ is the complete, in him, the complete, God, complete Godhead dwelt in bodily form. He's complete. And he talks about all that who Christ is. That was the Colossian heresy that he is again, that he is destroying. But then he also talks, uh, I want us to see verse 6. That's a great, uh, what, what Paul does that, he says, Christ Jesus the Lord. That's the only time he's actually used, he ever uses that title, Christ Jesus the Lord. And by putting that Christ Jesus the Lord, he's actually destroyed three different arguments. He is Christ, so any Jew would say, if he's not Christ, if he's not the Messiah, he's saying Jesus Christ is Christ. And then he's saying he's Jesus. The Docetists would believe that Jesus was only a spiritual being, he was only apparent, his sufferings were apparent, he wasn't real human. But he is Jesus, and then he is Lord, the deity of Christ being attacked. And there he says, Jesus, Christ Jesus, the Lord, putting it all together. And then he continues on now where we are from verse 16 downwards. And so the second is a legalism or Mosesism. I want to call it. You see, what, 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 what is happening is in verse 16, there are five things mentioned there in verse 16, which becomes apparent that it's what the Jews would do. And so it seems like to us that there were Judaizers who were coming alongside and saying, listen, Christ is all right. I mean, you, you got faith and you got grace and all of that, but nowhere does it say to give up on the loss of Moses. So they all have to be put together. You, you have to, this is an addition, you have to add on. And what, what Paul is saying, by adding, you're deleting. 
by adding to anything that God has done, the Lord Jesus Christ has done, to the personhood of Christ and to the work of Christ, by adding, you are deleting from who he is. The sovereignty and the sufficiency of Christ is impacted if we add. That's what legalism does. And so if somebody were to say you have to do the laws of Moses, somebody were to say that this plus, then you are, this is what the problem is, the danger is. Jesus must be the one who is exclusive in the work that he has done. And so you might ask, why did God even bring all those laws and bring in a confusion, right? Because in verse 17, he anticipates that, and he says these were mere shadows. These were given so that they know something's happening. A shadow is something the original casts. So if you see the shadow, you look to see where, the, where it's falling from. And you have to see that it's Jesus Christ. And so Paul reminds these Colossian churches that the relig- these religious rites were mere shadows. And in the unveiling of Jesus, the shades have been removed. Or the shadows have been removed. Then verse 18 and 19 is about mysticism. So you have, uh, the first was Gnosticism, you have legalism, then you have mysticism. What he's saying there is that to relate to God, you have to have those extra supernatural experiences. There are these emotional, you have these other things that you have to have a very emotional kind of experience that seems to be ethereal. And he's saying you need to be careful about that because if he, he talks on to say that it's about you know, praying to angels or talking to angels and to the dead saints and all of that. And Paul is saying, why would you want to do that? Why would you think that you have to go through somebody to get to Christ, Christ who is the complete one? Why do you want an alternative? And if you do, you're saying that he's not sufficient. And so any prayers to the saints or to the angels or any of those mystic experiences that people talk about, Paul is destroying. He's saying it is not not of, of what God wants you. It's against his sovereignty and his sufficiency, the personhood and the work of Christ. Then in verse 20 to 23, he talks about asceticism. This severity as a means of salvation. And some of you would know, in the place that I grew up, we are led to believe that that is the most uh, richest of the temples, of the Hindu temples in the world. The collections are almost in billions. People go there to... Uh, cut their hair off and all of that. But you know something? I live about 900 kilometers away from where that temple is, and yet there are people who roll all the way to the temple. They get up, prostrate, mark a line with their hands, get up, walk that, fall down, mark, and do that for the rest of 900 kilometers because they want to appease their God. They want to have the severity of their body. They would fast. They would do all of that. 
And Paul is saying, all these are vain. It doesn't add to anything. They, they just, it doesn't help. You have in Christ who is complete, whose work is complete. We cannot add or we cannot delete from that work. And so in verse 18, he says, let no one disqualify you. Let no one disqualify you. By insisting on any of these requirements, let no one beguile you for the, word, for the reward to come, that you would not lose your reward. Verse 23, it only has an appearance of wisdom. There's no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. It doesn't stop the indulgence. You know what Benegal says? Benegal says, he who does not hold Christ solely and supremely above all others does not hold him at all. If he is not supreme, if he's not exclusive, he doesn't, he, he doesn't take a second place, third place. He, he, he either is or he is not. There are no gray areas with him. And so the question we have to ask is, how do we add or delete? What about legalism? You know, we, we think about legalism, and I think it's important because there are two faces of legalism. One is, right, all those religious practices, the religious, uh, the religionist, as you might call him, and says, like, let's do all of these things. But we, there are some of us who are the moralist. You know what the moralist does? He says, hey, listen, you did that? Really? I mean, I would never do that. You see, it's my strength and based on which I'm saying, I'm saying I would never do that. I, I, I take this place of high moral ground. And it often gets cold and lonely. We forget that any righteousness that we have, any good that we have is because of Jesus Christ. And that I have no good in me is not because of my high standards that I hold myself up to that I'm approved before God. Even that is adding to the righteousness. Trying to add, you could never really add. And also this, uh, it's good to also quickly mention about the self-denial, right? The self-denial that so many, the sadhus and the Himalayas and, and all of those people who have the severe form of asceticism, who feel that they're doing that, you feel like, wow, they're really trying, struggling and everything. God would be, would be forced to hear them and respond to them. And Paul is saying all this just has this feeling of greatness, but it's not. It's vain. It doesn't help. Any form of asceticism that comes from your own strength is is just that, vain. But in Christ Jesus, when you give up of yourself, your self-denial is to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the beginning of discipleship. So it's all in Christ. You, all roads lead, must lead to him, wherever you begin. Otherwise, you'd be so lost. And so, dear brothers and sisters, this is the question I have for you. What are some of the things that we might add or delete as a practice? Or are we convinced that he is all 
all complete. I, I was trying to draw an imagery in my, in my mind about how I would apply this or look at this myself. And I thought of this as, as going into a, super, uh, into a store. I'm going into a store. I got my uh, shopping cart. And I go from aisle to aisle, look at everything there is, and, and then I get to the cashier, and my shopping cart is empty. The cashier looks at that and says, hey, listen, we got, a, we got a great deal going on today. Everything is free. It's all paid for. All you have to do is just pick it up. And so then I look at that and says, uh, oh, really? And then I start to make excuses. You see, the watermelon is too heavy. Or, and the fish, I have to take it home and I have to clean it up. And then the meat, uh, it's not barbecue season. I, you know, I have all these excuses. So I leave the cashier with an empty cart. And then when I get out, there are these crowds of people. There's one crowd who's saying, you know, how, is, how, how do we make the store better? Uh, there's the other crowd who's talking about another store which is better and all of those. So I join in the discussion. And I want you to raise this exponentially. We are sometimes so satisfied with our salvation that we have in Christ that we have lost out on all the unplumbed treasures in Jesus Christ. He is offering it to, to us for free that we'll understand him, we would know him, enjoy him, that we would be rooted and grounded and that this love that we have received would be, would be evidenced in our life because of our gratitude, because of our love, that it begins right here. We are united in love and that goes beyond and that we love even our enemies. And yet we, in our practice, sometimes we are ones of those who are talking about how do we add or delete? How, how is that store better, this store better? And so I want us to think about, think about the, the sovereignty and the sufficiency of Christ. And say, Lord, I've been running. I've been running away from you know, knowing, yes, I need to give myself to you entirely. Or, or, or that I, you know, I have not been satisfied in you. I find my satisfaction in other things. Now, I hope that is not, that is not we want to be satisfied, that is not we want to stay because then our minds are so deceiving. And so we were talking about this on, on Friday. What does that mean for our heart to be wicked and, and deceitful? What it's saying is, what, what, what your heart is saying, well, that's all right. He can talk as long as he wants. Everything's okay. I got it. But your heart is deceiving you. Heart is saying it's okay, but it is not okay. According to the word of God, it's not okay. And so this is my plead with you, brothers and sisters. As you hold me accountable, that we hold each other accountable. That we would say that he would be preeminent in our lives, that our hearts would be encouraged. That we would be knit together in love, not because we are the you know, we, we are so loving or that we are worthy of love, but because of his love. And that we would commit to grow together in this knowledge of Jesus Christ, who is the mystery of God, who is hid from everybody else, but revealed to us. So may his name be glorified. I want to leave you with two questions as we do. 
It says, give examples from your daily life in the little ways we add or delete from the sovereignty and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And what steps will I take to find my total satisfaction in Jesus Christ? And with that, I want to...